Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. If we take anything from the year 2020 in politics, it is that... Democracy is on the ropes. If that sounds overly dramatic, how about putting it this way? The future of our democracy and, and of our country is very fragile right now. This week on 880 In-Depth, how broken is politics in America today? There's been a complete breakdown of uh, people's faith in democratic norms. Uh, 23% of the American people say that the a free press is an enemy of the people. 18% of Americans say that uh, violence is an acceptable strategy to achieving a political outcome. And perhaps a more important question, can we heal a nation more divided than at any time in the last half century? I'm actually optimistic. Welcome to 880 In-Depth from the WCBS News Radio 880 Newsroom. I'm Tim Sheld. Even as one campaign ends this week, Another is just getting started. Uh, I'm Steve Israel. I served in uh, Congress uh, representing Long Island, New York from 2001 to 2017. I'm now the director of the Institute of Politics and Global Affairs at Cornell University. And I'm Susan Molinari. I served in Congress for representing Staten Island and part of Brooklyn from 1990 to 1997. Um, My last real job was public affairs manager for Google for the Americas, and now am a political and communications consultant. Two former members of Congress from New York, one Democrat, one Republican, both deeply concerned about the vitriol in American politics today. They sat down this week with our Peter Haskell to talk about their new project, something called the Campaign for the Future of Democracy. Well, you know, Congresswoman Molinari and I are so concerned, along with so many other Americans, that the democracy seems to have reached a very fragile state, uh, that uh, Americans, as a result of a variety uh, of circumstances, uh, are now either uh, committed Republicans or committed Democrats, and we treat each other as enemies rather than people who just have different opinions. There's been a complete breakdown of uh, people's faith in democratic norms, Uh, 23% of the American people say that the free press is an enemy of the people. 18% of Americans say that uh, violence is an acceptable strategy to achieving a political outcome. Democracy is on the ropes, and the campaign for democracy is a non, a campaign for the future of democracy is a nonpartisan partnership 
of Republicans and Democrats who want to rebuild uh, Americans' resilience to the notion of, of democracy. Susan, Susan, the president delivers a State of the Union speech every year. At this point, how would you characterize the state of our union? Oh, I would say, oh, that is such a good question. What an existential question for our country. I, I think Steve put it correctly. This, the, 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 the future of our democracy and, and of our country is very fragile right now. Um, I think the, you know, the last four years, and, and, and even before that, we became much more divided. And, and became to, to see, you know, that the, the compromise became a, a dirty word, um, that you know, having respect for someone with whom you had disagreements um, became something that was seen as a sign of weakness. Um, all the tenets that we, that we build and that we cherish, include, including free and fair elections, um, are being challenged. Um, and, and, and I think that, um, you know, the one thing that does bring me hope is that we are... are sitting right now on record turnout of votes, record turnout of votes of people who have typically been disenfranchised, and a record turnout of votes of younger people. So I think we can say that, but, you know, Steve had called me, this is his brainchild, and said, you know, if democracy were a candidate, it would lose right now. So what do we need to do to get the best and the brightest of people who believe that, you know, country first, uh, party second, um, to, to, re- to reinvigorate how we feel about civics and, and respect, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, um, you know, I'm in, because I think there's few things that are more important to the future of our country than getting people to start to look towards democracy again with the kind of reverence and respect, even if it's not representing your political viewpoint. Um, there's no greater gift I can give my kids. Steve, how would you characterize the state of our union right now? Oh, I think uh, the state of our union, uh, in terms of a union, is probably at its lowest point since the 60s. And I'm not necessarily talking about the 1960s. I think I'm talking about the 1860s. We are more polarized, more divided than it has ever been. Uh, you know, I hear people talking about Democrats as Democrats are the enemy. And I hear Democrats talking about Republicans as if they are the enemy. It's as if we are living on two planets. One is red, the other is blue, and we're in kind of like this interstellar combat. It is an existential threat to the United States of America. We're not the United States. We're the divided states. However, I do believe that we can find some common ground as long as we take some time to stop screaming at each other mm. and begin a conversation with each other. And that's what the campaign for the future of democracy is about. You know, if I could just jump in, it, it seems, it, what concerns me even more is that we have allowed ourselves to become so divided at a time when we should be so united through this pandemic. I mean, what we're understanding is that we are all responsible for one another and, and families and the economy. I mean, we are living through some really tough economic times. This should be a time, economic health-wise, this should be a time when we should be pulling more together um, as opposed to, you know, having these esoteric conversations about masks versus no masks. So I, I think it, it just underscores that at a time of, of such crises on every level that we're not pulling together and, in fact, are, are using this pandemic to sort of set us apart from one another. 
Over the past four years, it seems President Trump has no interest in bridging the partisan divide. The vice president says if he's elected, he's pledging to do that. But is that enough? Is it enough for a president? And can a president do it? Where does the leadership need to come from? Well, look, the president, uh, as you know, uh, the president has both. Uh, and uh, a president who talks, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, talks about the need to unite, uh, to uh, focus together on the mess of problems confronting the United States, whether it's economic, pandemic, uh, foreign governments trying to meddle in our democracy. A president who can galvanize the American people uh, will, will do us well. But, Peter, I also want to say, You know, that responsibility is not limited to a president. That's the responsibility of other elected officials. Mm -hmm. Susan Molinari is a Republican. I'm a Democrat. We both served in Congress. Yes, we disagreed on certain issues, but we also understood the need to find common ground, not to spend time focusing on disagreements, but spend more time on agreements. And we need more members of Congress who will find that common ground. And then finally, this is the responsibility of the American people. We're living in bubbles. You know, we live, we live in social media bubbles. We live in news bubbles where we're curating our own news and we watch certain cable programs, not because we learn what's happening, but because it validates our biases. The public has a responsibility to break out of their preconceived notions and their political and partisan commitments and begin to understand that there may be other opinions, but at the same time, commit themselves to supporting democratic norms and opposing anyone, foreign or domestic, who tries to break those norms. Susan, I want to touch upon something that you mentioned. Back in the day, and, and this includes when I suspect the two of you served, bipartisanship seemed to be a selling point. Now, unless you're in a swing district, it's a negative. So two things. One, how do we get past that? And how do we get lawmakers to understand that, yeah, maybe it's better if we come together and do something? You know, you're absolutely right. Back in the day, I mean, my first job in politics was in the New York City Council, where I was the only Republican in all of city government, hence minority leader of the city council. Um, I'm going to take us all back um, on a trip through history. Ed Koch was mayor, and he was so good to me. And at one point, one of his commissioners wasn't answering my phone calls, and I went down and complained to the mayor because at 27, you know, that's what I would do. And he made the commissioner come to his office while I sat there and said, she may be a Republican, but she got here the same way I did, through the votes of people. And so you will respect her and answer her phone calls. That was a message to me that I will cherish for the rest of my life in terms of the respect that we owe each other, not only as elected officials, but as Americans. And, and I, you know, I think Steve can tell you I, you know, I had people who helped me pass legislation that would help Staten Island, who would then come and campaign against me, um, because it wasn't just about me, right? It was about the people from Staten Island. And I, I always say that, you know, if, if we're not willing to compromise, and of course there are some issues upon which you will not compromise, right? 
but if we're not willing to compromise on, on sort of the bigger issues like right now where, you know, Congress cannot compromise on another aid package to a country that's suffering, what we're really saying is my constituents are better, smarter than your constituents. And when we broil it down to the constituent level, no one would ever say that. And so I, I think we just have to continue to remind people and remind our former colleagues that this isn't about us. It's about the people who elect us, and, and, and we have a larger obligation to them than, you know, just sort of not being able to give in because it will help that political party for the moment if it helps all of our constituents. You know, p- part of the problem is this notion of congressional gerrymandering. So once upon a time when you had congressional districts that had kind of moderate dispositions, almost as many Republicans as Democrats, Compromise was valued, yeah. but then they began to draw districts politically to protect a Democrat or a Republican. And when that happened, uh, compromise was not valued, it was vilified. Mm. Why? Because as Susan knows, right now, out of 435 districts in the House of Representatives, all but, you know, on a good day, 50 are either far left or far right. True. Only 50 are in the middle. And so if you are a, a Democrat on the left, uh, in a district that's on the left, you don't wake up in the morning thinking a Republican can beat you. You wake up in the morning fearing that a left Democrat will beat yes. you. And if you're a Republican in a far-right Republican district, you're not afraid of a Democrat. You're afraid of being primaried by somebody further from the right. The, the consequence of this is that we now have a Congress that is mostly – reluctant to compromise because they know they're going to be punished for it in a primary. And going back to Steve's point about the divided media, you're also not going to get the media that would that would praise you. You know, sometimes yep. you'd have those those things like my, you know, my local paper when I would compromise or, you know, vote with the Democrats would say, you know, would do an op-ed and say that's great. You know, we're glad to see that you may not just, you know, agree with Congresswoman Molinari at any given point, but that she's willing to reach across party lines. I would get pats on the back from the media for doing that, where that's very rare right now. So how do we stop the weaponization of social media? And, and is there a way to get people out of these media silos? Oh, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. There's several ways to do it. We used to have uh, things like the Fairness Doctrine and Equal Time Requirements, where when you were watching a program, you always had some balance. You may have disagreed with the other side, but you had some exposure to those arguments. And both Equal Time and the Fairness Doctrine you know, have, have been eliminated, by the way, by Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. Now, I understand there, there, there are valid arguments to the renewal of Equal Time and the Fairness Doctrine. I get it. But we have to find a way of breaking out of those media silos. I go on MSNBC uh, not infrequently, and I know when I'm on set at MSNBC that my audience is a left-of-center audience and that very few people on the right are listening to my arguments. And when I used to go on Fox News from time to time, I knew that I was talking to a right-of-center argument and there were no listening. We've got to find a way of breaking through that siloed media. But, yeah. but, is, I, I, but I, Susan, you know, is there an incentive to break through that? Fox News makes a ton of money. Yep. Why shouldn't they move to the center? Yeah, um, you know, I, look, I think, I think that's kind of what we're trying to figure out, right, with this, with this program that Steve's developed. Um, you know, we're going to be doing polling. We're going to be trying to find out 
what are those moments where what are those trigger moments where we can get people who look at your political opposition as the enemy um, what are those arguments how do we phrase things you know that that will make it more appealing maybe for media to tone down a little bit or to at some points in time bring people on who are not um, as as um, who are not as opinionated um, on one side or the other. I do have to say, though, and I think this is the exact same time, because I think a president, you know, honestly, if if, if President Trump were reelected, this would be extremely important, but I, I don't know if it would be as successful. I believe that now that it looks like, you know, there's going to be a President Biden, I know that's how he thinks. That's why I was able as a Republican to support him, you know, publicly for the first time in my life as a presidential candidate because I believe he believes all these things. Now, that's not to say the Democrats and the Republicans aren't going to have their political battles and life is going to be easy for him in any way, shape, or form. But we know that the language that's going to come from him is going to be respectful and it's going to be decent. And I think it will help to sort of cool off this country a little bit and, and allow us to hopefully have these conversations. Well, you know, I've argued that no matter uh, who would win the elections of president, uh, there are a lot of surprised people. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of Republicans who say, how is it even possible that Joe Biden could have won this thing? I don't know anybody who supports Joe Biden. And a lot of Democrats who are saying, how, could it, how is it possible that it is this close? Yeah. Uh, I don't know a single person who voted for Donald so Trump. So true. Right? And so the yeah. problem we have is that um, neither side is really listening to the other. I think it's really important for both Republicans and Democrats uh, to begin understanding what's kind of animating uh, this dynamic. And there's a particular dynamic. You know, only 30% of the American people believe that democracy is working for them. Uh, three years ago, The Economist uh, asked this question, do you believe that at least some form of violence is permissible to attain a political outcome? And 8% of Americans said yes. Now it's up to 18%. What is going on? Why are Americans, so, so many Americans, so willing to oppose the norms of democracy, the foundations of democracy? Now, there are a lot of theories. Some say it's an economic phenomenon. Some say it's a uh, globalization and automation fear of a changing economy. Others say it's the gerrymandering and social media. I think that we need, to, we, we need an explanation. We need to understand exactly what it is. And mm -hmm. the only way you can understand what it is is to have a conversation, is, is instead of pontificating about people, actually listening to them and understanding what is driving uh, those clear, clearly authoritarian impulses. And that's what our campaign for the future of democracy will do. We now have conspiracy theorists who are going to be serving in the United States Congress. And, and this, these conspiracy theorists on both sides are growing, and our neighbors are now starting to believe this. And so yeah. they're going to this because they feel, to, to Steve's point, that, that, to democ that democracy and the normal channels of discussion aren't working for them. So this is a dangerous, I mean, I think we're kind of at a tipping point right now, which is why I think this project is so important. Steve, I don't want to insult you, but you sound a little bit like an idealist. You say the fact that <laughs> n neither side is listening. But here's, here's the problem. I'm smart. The people I talk to are smart. We know what's going on. The other guys, they're stupid. 
they're trying to destroy the country. How yeah. do you get past that where I'm willing to hear what you have to say? Yeah, that is the key question, Peter. And you can replicate those conversations. You can go into a Starbucks in the Upper West Side and hear people online say, I know what's going on. I'm smart. I listen to Rachel Maddow. <laughs> yeah, I know that I've got all the answers. And those, those Trump people, they're deplorable. And then you can go into uh, a red district in a rural area uh, and stand online at the coffee shop and hear people say, I know what's going on. I'm smart. Those other people, those coastal elites, have no idea yeah. what's happening. You know, they just don't get it. Well, guess what? If you have these absolutes where people at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum believe that they have all the answers, there's no hope for bridging this divide. And that's why we've got to begin a conversation that doesn't prejudge anybody and understand what the attitudes are of people, what is propelling them in certain directions, and begin to build bridges. I, I get it. It's going to be really hard. I'm not naive. It's going to be hard. But if we don't start someplace and use people like Susan Molinari and myself, a Republican and a Democrat, as models of that conversation, then democracy is going to die in America. Susan, what do you think? I, I agree, and I, look, I think it's, you know, uh, it, it is going to, I mean, it, it sounds so, you know, I can't believe we're actually, like, Steve is saying something like democracy is going to die in America, and I'm shaking my head. But, when, again, when we look at where we are as a country where we don't accept presidents and leaders who are elected because we disagree with them or we voted against them, when we have conspiracy theorists who are now, you know, running the United States Congress and are not being denounced by our national leaders, when we have a time when, which is not going to stop, where we have foreign actors who are coming in and using social media and so many other um, aspects of, of the, you know, taking advantage of the freeness of our democracy to turn our democracy against us, um, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's going to be difficult. But I also believe that there is an inherent, you know, we've survived some pretty tough times in this country, you know, did not evolve, you know, in an easy way. And so I think that we just have to sort of, again, I think after this election we'll have some, hopefully, some cooling down of temperatures, and let's just engage in this debate. I think it is, again, one of the most worthy things that we can do. Um, you know, let's get back into civics. Let's get back into having these conversations. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it's worth a try. When you talk about, you know, we're smart, the other guys are stupid, it seems a lot of the emo the driving emotion, perhaps, on both sides is fear. So right. is that a healthy, and how do we get beyond that? Well, I was going to say that, you know, fear, as Susan knows, fear is the most animating uh, motivational impulse in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, candidates campaign on fear. We used to campaign on hope. Right. Now it's more likely that, you know, uh, politicians campaign on fear. And what is more... Uh, potent when you're campaigning on fear, fear of the other, mm -hmm. fear of these immigrants, fear of these socialists, fear of these neo-Nazis. Uh, and so we do have a fearful uh, environment right now. The, the, the only thing that really, the, the, the antidote to fear is education. The antidote to fear is understanding. Mm -hmm. This isn't kumbaya stuff. This is just practical politics. If we want fewer voters 
to support authoritarian personalities and messages, then we've got to engage them in a conversation on why they're doing that now and on what needs to be done to bring them back to being conservative, principled voters, but also understanding that there is an argument to be made for immigration in the United States or an argument to be made for uh, a free press. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I, I think back to that moment which we've seen on TV so many times where um, Senator McCain is, is, you know, talking to the, the woman at one of his you know, yeah. town halls and he says, no, you, you know, Barack Obama is not all these things. i got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not... No, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. He's a good man and a good family man and a good person with whom I just have political differences. And, you know, he was, that was one of those moments, right, where the country applauded him. Um, for, for having the grace to have that conversation. And so I do think that there's this fear does motivate us, but when we can find those people who can stand up and set us straight, the country does receive it well. campaign for the future of democracy is the brainchild of Steve Israel in his role as director of the nonpartisan Institute of Politics and Global Affairs for Cornell University. The mission of that organization is to raise the level of discourse in politics today, and Israel is busy signing up former colleagues to take part. That's why when we called him up this week to talk about the idea of our politics being broken, Steve Israel wanted to bring on Susan Molinari to join the conversation. They agree on much, but they also have differences. So as idealistic as it sounds, we have more in common, including big issues like the pandemic and the economy that need to be solved. It's why Peter Haskell wrapped up his conversation this way. We're facing a lot of really tough circumstances. It appears as we speak that Joe Biden is going to be the president. If that's the case, it appears Mitch McConnell, a Republican, will still be majority leader. Mm-hmm. We've got stimulus. We've got infrastructure. We've got producing and distributing a vaccine and trying to get people to believe they should take it. Can we still do big things? Can we, can we move forward? Can we, prog- you know, make progress? How do we do it, and can we? Well, let me answer that uh, short term and long term, and, and answer it concisely. I'm actually optimistic that both parties will understand that they've got to find some common ground on the pandemic and the economy. And one of the things that makes me really optimistic is some kind of consensus on infrastructure. If we can get Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden to support an infrastructure investment that rebuilds America, puts people to work, returns money to the economy, then it's probably the most the most important uh, public policy uh, that we can advance. So I'm hoping that we'll agree on uh, an infrastructure uh, investment. And then long-term, Peter, Republicans and Democrats together in, you know, in the near future, 
but this campaign for the future of democracy, the word future is really important because the other thing that Susan and I and our other supporters are doing, we're trying to cultivate the next generation of public servants to have a healthier respect for their, uh, their disagreements uh, and elevate the discourse much higher than the discourse we have now. So it's, it's about today, but it also transcends today. It's about a new future where Democrats and Republicans can disagree more agreeably. Well said. Susan, do you think we can still see a federal government that functions if we have a Democratic president and a Republican majority leader who, frankly, try to hold up whatever President Obama was trying to do? Yeah. I'm, you know, look, I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, that we will see, because they, these are two people who know each other, um, and I'm just, I'm hopeful that at least for the first two years, um, because the needs are so great in this country, that they will, and, and, and deep down, I think they're both institutionalists. And so I'm hoping that for the next, you know, two years at least, you know, when we get closer to another presidential, things start happening, but that um, they can really pull together to address some of the, 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 the massive problems that we have as this nation right now. So, um I actually believe these, that we can get some work done. For both of you, give us something positive. When I look to the horizon, why should I see the sunshine as opposed to the darkness and, and eclipse? What, what should give me hope today? Well, I'll just well, start and say, okay. Well, I mean, I think you should get give hope that we had record turnout in elections, that people are, are starting to understand that, that their vote counts, right? The first thing we need to do if we're going to strengthen this democracy and this project is going to work is that people feel that they are that they play an intrinsic role, everybody. And I think we started to see from this election that people are predisposed to understanding that. Um, I think the fact that um, we had... Um, that we're going to have, a, you know, our first female vice president who comes from, uh, you know, mixed backgrounds that can give so many other people an ability to aspire um, to higher office and to stand there, you know, believe in themselves and, and believe that this country really is a country, you know, of opportunities. Um, I, I think there's there's going to be a lot going on in the next four years. I mean, we're seeing more and more um, diversity coming to the state houses and, and the United States Congress. And so, you know, I, I think all of that should should provide us some hope during these dark times. Steve? I, I completely agree with, with Susan. Um, and, and then the only thing I would add in my personal experience is I, I teach a course at Cornell University remotely, and I teach it every Thursday morning. And when I go into that two-hour session with mm-hmm. college students, I have so much hope. They're not interested in, like, bashing each other based on blue and red. They just want solutions. And this class of undergraduates has taught me that if they become public servants and if we support their, uh, their skills and their talents, uh, then we will have a return to civic discourse and a greater respect for democratic norms. So they give me hope. Yeah, I love that, Steve. Yeah, I feel a little bit better, so thank you for that. Steve and Susan, thank you so much. This was really a, a, a fascinating conversation, and I hope that you're both right and we can bridge the divide and we can go forward. Well, thanks for giving us a chance to talk about it. 
880 In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Sheld. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you can catch up on our reporting on important topics. And as always, be safe. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.